which you have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing our walk through the book of Romans here at Cornerstone. We're getting somewhat close to the end. There are 16 chapters in the book, and we're at chapter 14 today. We're going to do about the first half of chapter 14. Now, it's a little bit different. Uh, you may have noticed over the last two chapters, 12 and 13, that Paul gave a lot of commands. Sometimes it's one right after the other. In fact, one time I think I counted 20 commands in just a short section. Well, he changes gears a little bit in chapter 14 and even part of 15, and he just addresses one issue. And the issue in these chapters is how we should treat our brothers and sisters in Christ when we disagree with them on what is called disputable matters, or some of your translations might say opinions. So we've all gotten into these discussions, right, where we disagree about something, and uh, we need to know how to handle ourselves. Uh, But before we jump right into a teaching on disputable matters, let's just say, let's acknowledge right up front that some things are simply black and white. Sometimes things are just wrong, and we need to know it. And and sometimes things are just right, and we need to know that as well. And again, I ask you, uh, hopefully we have this microphone thing fixed. Maybe I'll just not look so much over here today. I apologize. Uh, Try to make eye contact with everybody, but I'll I'll look out of the corner of my eye at you. (laughs) And I have eyes in the back of my head too, right, kids? I can see what you're doing, so... Uh, But God has clearly said sometimes things are wrong. Like, you shall not steal, okay? That's not a disputable matter. We know that we're not supposed to steal. Or you shall not commit adultery. Again, that's a black and white issue. That's not what we're talking about today in Romans 14. Uh, Even Romans 14, which does talk about these disputable matters, um, Paul says there in verse 22, Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. So what that means is that it is possible for us to be wrong on theological issues in such a way that we endanger ourselves. And you know what? I'm just going to make the call here right now. I'm going to move to this mic. Uh, Todd? Okay, thanks. Had a guest speaker in last week. He messed up the -the over-the-ear thing. It happens, so we'll get that fixed before next week. um, Okay, again, we're talking about disputable matters, we're not talking about those things that matter greatly. In fact, the same guy who wrote Romans 14, the Apostle Paul, is the guy who wrote Galatians. And if you've ever read the book of Galatians, you see that Paul rails against false teachers there. In fact, in Galatians 1, he says that if someone preaches a different gospel, let him be eternally condemned. Okay? So that the same Paul who can go just avidly against these false teachers, here in Romans 14, is very charitable towards those people with whom he disagrees. But the the key distinction is, in Romans 14, we're not talking about issues of the gospel and salvation. If we are, if we're in a disagreement about those issues, we really need to know where the lines are drawn. You see, I I love things black and white. Anybody else out there like that? You're doing a, yeah, thank you, good, good, I'm not the only one. Uh, I was an engineering student, and, um, you know, we had one of our professors that uh, he gave us three problems, the whole test was only three problems, and if you got the answer wrong at the end, you got it wrong. There was no, like, partial credit. In fact, one of my roommates made up a song uh, about this guy. He doesn't give partial credit. You know, you could do everything right, except you get one little tiny part of it wrong, and you're just all wrong. And you know what? There's something nice about that when it all just works together and you get the right answer. I love it that way. 
But what Paul's asking us to do in chapter 14 of Romans is something a little bit different. And he's asking us, in some ways, not to be such a stickler about these disputable matters. Um, so like I said, I like things black and white, but let me say two things right away on that issue. First, we don't always know the right answer. Okay? Um, for example, we might be wrong on an issue, or we might, in one context, know the right answer, but in a different context, maybe a different set of rules applies, and we don't always know. And then second, even if we do know the right answer, we don't always act the way that we should toward our brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with us. So that's what we're talking about today. And, and let me give you an example of one of these disputable matters. Um, let's say that you meet a Christian. It's a person you've never met before, and in the context of your conversation, you find out that they're a Christian. All right, brother, sister in Christ, you're saying. That's good, good news. Then in this conversation, let's say you find out that this guy doesn't have a TV in his house. And you say, oh, that's interesting. I'm just, I'm just curious. You know, I've got a TV in my house. You don't have a TV in your house. Why is that? Let's say that this guy says, well, you know, I just know that there's a bunch of bad stuff on TV, and I just don't want that influence in my house. Okay? What should you say? Multiple choice here. Option A, should you argue with him? Should you say, hey, we're Christians and we have the freedom to watch TV? Uh, and you could even say, well, hey, you know, yeah, of course there's some bad stuff on TV, but there's some really good stuff, too, that we could watch and maybe even could be edified from. So you're wrong, and I want you to, I want you to agree with me. That, okay, probably not. Okay. Option B, should we just kind of look down our noses at him? Should we judge him and say, Haha, well, you're just weaker than I am. Uh, you know, I am able to distinguish between, yeah, there's some bad stuff on TV, and I don't watch that stuff either, but there's some good stuff. And I am mature enough to know what those are, so I must be better than you, so, well, maybe one day you'll be like me. Is that our answer? Again, probably not. Or C, should our answer be to welcome him? I, I think that's the right answer, obviously. Now, on that issue of watching or not watching TV, I actually do believe theologically that we have the right to watch TV. Now, I also absolutely believe that there's some bad stuff on TV that will harm us, I think, in our spirit if we watch it. But here's the deal. This isn't a gospel issue, and as such, we should be loving in our disagreement. Okay? It's not worth arguing over in that sense. There are more important things than arguing about disputable matters. So, what I want to do today in the sermon is I want to walk through the first half of Romans 14 showing you three key concepts regarding these disputable matters. Okay, the first one comes from Romans 14, verses 1 through 5a, which I would now like to read for you. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another, another man considers every day alike. Okay, my first point today is that we should love our brothers. Now, the, the command here, it starts out in verse 1, is to accept, or many of your translations might say welcome, which I think is maybe perhaps a little bit better word here. Welcome our brothers who have weak faith, 
even if we disagree with them on these disputable matters. Now again, remember, we're not talking about matters of salvation here. That's important. We're talking about people who just happen to be wrong on an issue of something that doesn't regard salvation. And they're called weak here. One theologian said that part of their weakness is that they don't understand the freedoms that we have in Christ to do certain things that God has told us we can do. Um, In the first half of Romans 14, Paul mentions two topics about which these weak brothers or sisters misunderstand something. The first one that we just read has to do with whether or not it's okay for a Christian to eat meat. Now, we're not probably talking about like vegetarians of today who, for health reasons, choose not to eat meat. That's probably not what we're talking about. We're probably talking about people who, for spiritual reasons, perhaps as they read the Old Testament law and they see all these kosher meat laws, perhaps they're concerned about eating unclean meat, so they have just kind of cut out all meat so that they won't, by accident, eat the wrong kind of meat. That's perhaps what we're talking about here. Um, And then the second issue has to do with whether or not it's right to observe certain religious days. So the weak brothers or sisters had a certain view on these things. And it's interesting to me. If you look down to to verse 14, uh, which we're going to look at more next Sunday, but if you look at 14, Paul actually makes it clear that they're wrong. The weak brothers are wrong in this. Look at verse 14. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But Paul almost says that as an aside. You see, he could have just come guns ablaze and right away and said, those weak people, they're wrong. And tell them they're wrong. But he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, accept them. Welcome them. And maybe eventually they'll see things the right way, but that's not the important part. The important part, according to Paul, who wasn't afraid to get into a theological argument... The important part was that you accept or welcome those people even if you disagree. And again, it doesn't mean that we have to agree with them, but it does mean that we don't pass judgment on them. And again, for the third time, and I think this may be the last time I say it, but for the third time, we're not talking about matters of the gospel and salvation here. If that were the case, we should address it. We should try to get them to see things the right way. But in these matters, these disputable matters, we are not to pass judgment. You see... It wasn't wrong for a Jewish Christian in Paul's day to abstain from eating meat. It it wasn't a sin for him not to eat meat. I think it would have been wrong for that person to, to tell other people that they couldn't eat meat as well because God actually gives us that freedom to do it. But that person wasn't harming themselves by not eating. I don't think they were benefiting themselves either, but I don't think they were harming themselves. You see, what's important here is our response. We are to welcome and love them. Why? We're given a couple reasons. First, if you skip ahead to verse 10, we see that they're called our brother. If they know Jesus is Savior and Lord, then God is their father just like God is our father and we belong to the same family and we should treat them with love and respect. And then second, because God has accepted or welcomed him. You see, we are not to pass judgment because God hasn't passed judgment. And And even more than that, we aren't the ones to pass judgment anyways. I love verse 4 on this. Look at verse 4 again. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. It's a simple concept. If I go to your house and you have a butler, which I don't think any of you have a... Does anybody have a butler these days? Oh, you do. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, me. Okay. Well, all right, all right. 
Okay. See me afterwards, Tom. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's say I go to your house and your butler or your maid doesn't live up to my expectations of what I think that they should do for me. Should I then go to that butler and, and give them their punishment? No, I, I don't do that, right? It, it's just the exact same reason why I don't give your kids their grades in school. Um, it's the same reason when I'm watching a Twins game, I don't have the authority to call the major league offices and tell them to change a call. I am not the umpire. I don't get to do that. And, and the principle here is that it, in, it is the Lord who judges. Oftentimes, as human beings, we are tempted to judge other people. It's part of what it means for us to be human and to have these struggles. And to but instead here, we're called to welcome and accept our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the same thing I would like to add goes for the people with whom we disagree. They shouldn't judge or condemn us either. So it's a two-way street here. Um, you could see it like the person who doesn't eat meat. Maybe theologically he thinks that he's right. And maybe he looks down on those people who do eat meat. Maybe he judges them and saying, you're disobeying God. Neither way is right for that judgment to occur because God is the judge. And if they're weak and we know it, we should bear with them. And there's a good reason for this, a very good reason, because God is still at work in them too. Remember, God is at work in us. None of us has finished the process that God wants to bring us through of making us more holy and more like Christ. Every single one of us is somewhere along the way in that process. And I'm sure thankful that God is still working on me. I'm sure thankful that he's still working on you. So one of the reasons that we shouldn't judge other people is because we don't want to stop that process from happening in them. We want to allow them the same privilege that we have of letting God work on us and make us more like Christ. So the application point, very simple here. We should welcome our brother even if we dis disagree on disputable matters. We should let love rule the day. And in love, we can treat them as brothers and sisters. And like I said, maybe in the context of that relationship, maybe somewhere down the road, we'll be able to help them see the right way. Because again, these weak brothers in Romans 14, they were wrong. But it's not so important that they're wrong. What's important is that we love them. And even if they don't come around, we don't judge them. Okay, so that's point one today. Uh, what I want to do now, though, before I get right into point two, I want to take a little side trip. Uh, it's about three minutes long, I think. I want to talk about an issue that verse five brings up, one that's been very difficult for me theologically. It has to do with the Sabbath. And I can see why it's a disputable matter. Here's the question, or a, a list of questions. Should a Christian still observe the Sabbath? And if so, does the Sabbath fall on Saturday or Sunday? And if so, what does the command not to work mean? What do we have to not do? Is it just that we don't go to our job? Or is it that we don't do the dishes? Is it that we don't watch or play sports? Well, I think that this falls into the disputable matters category. And as such, we're told here, as well as in Colossians 2.16, not to let anyone judge us. However, having said that, I do want to say a few words about the Sabbath, because it's been such a curiosity for me over the years. Uh, I have four quick things I want to say. First, God established a pattern in Genesis 1 of working for six days and then resting for the seventh day. Now, that was before sin entered into the world. God followed that pattern, and then he gave that pattern to us. So I think that there's something to that pattern that we should hold on to. And actually, I think what it is is that we were created to rest 
one day out of the week. And I think if you're not doing that, in my opinion, you're just injuring yourself. So I think it's good for us to follow that pattern of resting one day a week. Now second, what I would like to say is that I'm glad that there are some people who work on Sundays, like police and doctors and nurses. Uh, I'm thankful that if I, you know, uh, swallow this microphone and I need to go to the hospital, I'm glad that there's going to be somebody there to take care of me. So having said that, what I would suggest for those people that have to work on Sundays is that you find somewhere else in your pattern of your week to get that rest and that worship as well that I think that we were created for. Okay, now third, and this is the part that's always been curious to me. Um, it's interesting to me to know that of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, nine of them are explicitly repeated, but this one about the Sabbath is not. So what does that mean? Are we supposed to assume that since all the other nine were repeated, that the tenth one is also repeated, or are we to assume that we're not commanded to do it because it's not repeated in the New Testament? Honestly, I don't know the answer for sure. I think that's why it's a disputable matter. However, let me uh, clear this up hopefully now by saying my fourth point. Even if the Sabbath command isn't required in the New Testament, we should absolutely set aside time to worship together. Remember, there are two things in the Old Testament it said to do on the Sabbath. What were they? Worship and rest. Those are the two things that were commanded. Now, in the New Testament, we are commanded to worship many places. Uh, Hebrews 10.25, for example, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We're told in Romans 12 to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So we're supposed to worship, and I think it makes a lot of sense that we build that into the regular pattern of our week. So I think gathering together on a Sunday is just a good pattern to get into. Now, if you can't do that on Sunday morning, I'd suggest again that you build something else into your week. Uh, and then I'd also just say about rest, I don't, uh, I don't know that I could say the same thing, that rest is commanded, but rest is offered to us. In fact, uh, Jesus said, come, all you, how does it go? All you who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. God wants to give us rest. And I think that one of the ways that we can do that is to set aside a day for it. So to me, where I fall down on this is that I don't think that the Sabbath, uh, well, let me say it this way. I'm not sure that the Sabbath command is, is a command, but I am sure that the principles of it are still very good for us to follow. However, I'm not going to judge somebody else for how they observe it. Do you get that? that you see, I, I could come down where I come down and say everybody has to land where I land on this theological issue. Or I could say, you know what, this is not a gospel issue, so it's going to be okay for us to disagree. And I think that's what Paul is saying in this passage. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's okay for us to disagree. What's not okay is if we judge or if we stop loving. Does that all make sense? I hope so. Um, let's move on now to my second point, which is going to be quite a bit quicker here. Second point is, we should do what we do by faith and with thanksgiving. Uh, just going to read the end of verse 5 again and then verse 6. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So two principles here, faith and thanksgiving. First, we are to do what we do by faith. At the end of verse 5, we're told that we should be fully convinced. 
Or also, as it says in verse 23 at the end of this chapter, everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now, I've found that verse to be a challenging one over the years, but also a helpful one. And here's the way that it goes. If you ever come across one of these disputable areas in your life, let's say it's a gray area, maybe you're just not sure, can I do this, can I not do that? Well, if you're not sure whether or not you can do it, you don't have the faith to say, I know that I can do it. And if you don't have the faith to say, I know that I can do this, then maybe you shouldn't do it. Now, I would just put that in the category of good advice. I'm not going to say it as a command, uh, but what I would just say that we should honor the Lord by seeking Him by faith. And if we don't know that He's letting us do something, then maybe it gives us pause to say, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I need to keep seeking wisdom on that. Keep talking to God about it. Keep talking to other people about it. And then the second principle here is that we should do what we do with thanksgiving. It's interesting, isn't it, in verse 6, that even if a person is wrong about what they're doing, but they don't know that they're wrong, they can apparently still honor God by doing it with thanksgiving. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? God will accept their thanks even if they're wrong. Now, careful with that, because um, we can't just do something that we know is wrong and give thanks to God. For example, you can't steal a car and then say, wow, God, thank you for this new car. It's just always, you're amazing at how you provide. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. We know that's wrong. But the principle still stands that what we do, we should do by thanksgiving. We should seek to honor God and give thanks to him in the midst of it. Uh, let me show you a couple verses on this thanksgiving. 1 Corinthians 10.30 If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Apparently some people were looking down on him, but he says, hey, wait a second, I'm thanking God for this. And then the next verses from 1 Timothy 4, I really like these. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Isn't that neat? God has created a bunch of good things for us, and he wants us to enjoy them with thanksgiving. But notice the last two things there, the word of God and prayer. I think what that means is that we should be in constant conversation with God about what is right and about what pleases him. And when I say conversation, I absolutely mean that. That the same God who created the universe and who created you wants to know you, wants to talk with you. So he has given us his word so that we can listen to him and he's given us prayer so that we can talk to him. And we should constantly be engaging in those things, figuring out what is right and what pleases the Lord. And when we figure those things out, then we do them and we thank God for them and it's glorifying to God and we enjoy it. Isn't, it, isn't that great? Isn't that refreshing? Everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Those are freeing verses. There are things that God created for us to enjoy, and we can enjoy them with thanks as we continue that conversation with God about what honors Him. So, application here, let's live by faith and full of thanksgiving. Let's not just do the things that we want to do. Let's seek God and figure out what he wants us to do. And when you do those things, then be thankful. And by the way, I think that most Christians just in general could stand to be more thankful. Uh, maybe I'm just projecting myself onto you all, but that, that's my opinion of most Christians, that we could all stand to be a little more thankful. So how thankful are you? As you think about the good things in your life, 
When was the last time you thanked God for them? I think it'd be a good practice for us all to be more thankful. Okay, let's read the rest of our passage now. Verses 7 through 12. For none of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So we already saw in verse 4 that we are not to judge other people because we are not their Lord. And then according to verses 7 and 8, we don't live to ourselves alone and we don't die to ourselves alone. In life or in death, we belong to the Lord. And I think that brings up the key point of our passage. So uh, verse 9 to me is the key verse here. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why he died and rose again, so that he could be Lord. Now think about that. Jesus did amazing things for us. He gave up his home in heaven. He came to earth, born as a baby, to live a perfect and sinless life, to teach us things about God, and then amazingly, to take our sins upon him and die for us, for the payment for our sins. And then we know the end of the story, too. Amazingly, he rose from the dead so that all who believe in him can be forgiven and can have eternal life. All of that goes to show that he is Lord. He, he is our master. That's what the word Lord means. He's master. And if he is our Lord, that means a couple of things for us. And I want to kind of hammer home this first point here. Oh, sorry, I forgot to tell you the third point here. We should know that Jesus is Lord. And if that's true, here's one of the things we need to know. We are not our own Lord. It's so easy for us to go through this life and assume that we are Lord. There, there's really only two ways that I think that we can live our lives. The best way, the right way, is where we submit to Jesus Christ. We recognize that he is Lord and Master and that we give our lives to him. And the, the posture of the rest of our lives then is bowing in obedience to him and saying, Master, what would you like me to do? That's how we should live our lives. The other way to live our lives would be to pretend that we are our own Lord. And instead of asking God what, we want, what he wants us to do, we ask ourselves what we want to do. You ever been there? You ever heard yourself saying, I want to do this? You ever heard yourself saying that regardless of what the other people around you are saying, regardless of what God is saying? It's so easy and natural for us as humans to assume that we are in control of our own lives, but that is not how we were created to live. We were created to know Jesus Christ as Lord and to follow him. A couple of verses on this. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he, that's Jesus, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Okay? I want you to, I kind of want that to be burned into your brain here today. Those who live should no longer live for themselves. Anybody struggle with that? Besides me, yeah, thank you, okay. Should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That is the Christian life, where he is Lord. Another verse here. I love this one from 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. 
You were bought at a price. The price hanging over our heads was costly. The only price that could satisfy it was the death of Jesus Christ. And when he paid that price, he purchased us. So we belong to him. So if Jesus is Lord, it means that we are not Lord. We are not the Lord of our own lives. We should submit to him. And then also another point on this, if Jesus is Lord, that means that Jesus is also Lord of other people, meaning that I'm not your Lord either. And if I'm not your Lord, like we've already studied, that means that I shouldn't judge you because Jesus will judge. And we're reminded here a couple times in this passage that we will all have to stand before God's judgment seat and we will all have to give an account of ourselves to God. Did you know that? That even believers will have to give an account of our lives before God? But praise the Lord for those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that judgment will not be a judgment of heaven and hell because that's already been decided at the cross and when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So when we go to God and give an account of him, if we know Jesus is Savior and Lord, the purpose of that judgment is something else. And you know what? I'm kind of looking forward to that. I'm kind of dreading it because, um, you know, all that stuff might be brought up and I'm going to have to give an answer for the, the wrong things that I've done. But I'm looking forward to it because on that day, once for all, I will learn what pleased and didn't please the Lord. And from there, God will take me to be with him in glory. And it's going to be perfect and new there. So I'm kind of looking forward to having that once-for-all cleansing where I come to perfect realization of what honors God and what doesn't. But that's where everyone is headed to this judgment. Like it says in verse 11, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. That's an important concept. Paul is quoting here from Isaiah 45. Uh, You may want to read Isaiah 45 on your own sometimes. It's a wonderful passage of the Bible. It's quoted here in Romans 14. It's also quoted in that that hymn of Christ in Philippians 2. Remember that? Where it talks about how uh, Christ came as a servant and uh, and humbled himself to death, but then God raised him up and then says, every knee will bow before him. I want to read for you some of the context of Isaiah 45, and I'm just going to leave this passage up here for the rest of the sermon. Isaiah 45, 21, starting in the, the halfway point of that verse. And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Do you get that? There's no other Lord. There's one Lord. And then he goes on to say, By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. A few times this week I asked myself these questions about Romans 14. What's so important about Romans 14? Why does Paul spend an entire chapter talking about these disputable matters and how we should respond to each other in them? Maybe some of you are asking the same question right now. Eric, why are you talking at such length about this? Can't we just be done and go home? The Vikings are playing tonight. Come on. We gotta get re- well, on the one hand, it is helpful for us to know how to treat these people with whom we have disagreements. We should love them. We should accept them. So that's useful. But I think even more important than knowing how to treat people with whom we disagree is this concept of knowing Jesus as Lord. Isn't it interesting how in a, in a passage about 
not judging other people, Paul brings back into it this idea that Jesus is Lord and we all are going to bow before him. You see, it's all too easy for us to pretend to be our own Lord, to try to live according to our own rules, and even to try to impose our rules on other people. But when we do that, we forget God or we try to push him out of his rightful place. But I've got a news flash here. We can't push God out of his place. That, you're supposed to say amen to that, by the way. We can't push God out of his place. He is Lord and we are not. One day, every knee will bow before him. He is the Lord of that day, and he is also the Lord of this day. And we need to recognize that. And the more that we can recognize that on a moment-by-moment basis, that he is Lord and we are not, the better our lives will run, because we were created to follow him. Remember, the same God who said that everything that he created is good is the God who has good plans for us. So what are those good plans? When we go off on our own and try to find what we want, or when we submit to him, and live according to what he wants. We need to humble ourselves before him. It's going to be really important on that day whether or not we've humbled ourselves before him. So let's practice this day humbling ourselves before our Lord. One way we can practice that is by not pretending to be the Lord when we disagree with other people. So we accept them and we welcome them. Another way that we can practice that is to seek God in everything we do, always acting by faith, always seeking to find out what pleases Him. And the things we do, we do with thanksgiving. But perhaps most importantly, we must always recognize that Jesus is Lord. And let me close my sermon by simply rereading verse 9. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that He might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Would you pray with me? God, we are thankful that you have revealed to us so clearly that Jesus is Lord. And God, we, we confess that oftentimes we live our lives a different way, pretending that we are the Lord of our own lives, even judging others with whom we disagree. But God, may we rejoice in the fact that you are Lord. Help us to willingly submit our lives as an act of worship to follow you all the days of our lives. God, we thank you that you've told us the end of the story that one day every knee will bow. We pray that we would bow now. God, we love you, we praise you, and we proclaim that you are Lord. We pray that many, many others will come to know that as well. Help us to love them as we interact with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.